Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. So I want to talk about the barriers to nature education in our culture today. And I'm mostly talking about the experience of creating programs like this in the United States. And you may find that it's similar in the UK or Europe or in Canada. I'm not 100% sure what everything, you know, the landscape looks like as we expand further. And although I'm very interested in that. But I want to talk about these barriers because it's very common for people who are trying to develop new programs or bring a nature education experience into a school or into a preschool or into a college or in some way put that out into our communities. And it can definitely be a struggle at times. And I have a lot of conversations with educators about their journey and their dealing with some of the things we're going to talk about. So I'm just wanting to put out for everyone to see like kind of some of the thoughts I have around these barriers, partly because when I started learning tracking, one of the things that my teachers would often say is, Ricardo, if you want to learn or follow or track, you know, animals like a deer, the better you know that animal, the better you know it, and the more you know about it, the easier your tracking is going to be. Because now you have some basis for your uh, searching for clues and for marks and sign and everything. And I found that to be true. You know, like uh, many times if I came, went into a natural area and I didn't know the animals in that area, I would look at the ground and go, I don't know what's going on here. But if I, if I had done the research for that, I definitely will know, like when it comes to deer or foxes or whatever, you know, it helps to know what do they like to eat? Where do they sleep? When do they have their young? Like the more, you know, the easier it is to see the animal, um, have encounters, uh, track and follow them and understand them in a really fundamental way. So I think we need to really track these barriers and think about them and think about them dispassionately so that we can understand what we're going up against when we are trying to bring something new into our communities. You know, it's really easy for us as nature people because we usually got into nature and nature education because we loved making things, making a basket, learning about trees. We love, you know, gathering wild edibles or uh, wild medicinal plants. And we, we just love learning about nature, doing stuff. And so for us, that's the beauty and that's the draw for our work. And at the same time, sometimes our work is we have to deal with these situations and the barriers. We can really feel like these barriers sometimes are, you know, threatening our identity as an educator. They're threatening our program's livelihood or our, for our family. It can be a really scary thing to go up against it because we're not sure what's going on. We're not really quite sure what we're dealing with. You know, just like we don't always know what we're dealing with when we look at a snake. Are we like, is it poisonous? Is it going to bite me? Is it this? Is it that? 
So the more we know about it, the better we can kind of work around that. And, and if we can understand what's needed, we can then find ways to get support. So, so that's what we're going to do as we dive into this. So the first element of what I would call like these barriers is it's like this uh, impenetrable barrier of classic education and academic structure or whatever you want to call it. And it really, it's very difficult sometimes to penetrate that, that veneer or, you know, to get to the human beings that are actually part of that process. It's, it's just sometimes really hard to get behind the wall or, you know, get behind the barrier or whatever you want to call it. So it helped me the other day because I was watching the History Channel. Uh, my son likes to flip the channels around and he was watching for a few minutes. He just kind of left this History Channel thing on that was talking about classical Greek and uh, early Roman uh, philosophers. And they were talking about the birth of you know our modern educational system. Our system is really built on their initial structure that they created. And they started this uh, around 500 BC, began forming these schools and sort of temples and, you know, places of higher learning, so to speak. And they, they covered things like grammar and grammar wasn't like, you know, you know, uh, just the language and structure of language. Grammar was seen as getting the basics of science. There was a grammar of science, grammar of history, grammar of languages. There was a, it was seen in a different way um, to give, you know, people in these communities a way to share the knowledge that everyone has painstakingly begun exploring. And so they covered grammar, they covered logic, rhetoric, and then they started to dive into arithmetic, geometry, music, astronomy. And then they began adding things like literature, poetry, philosophy, history, art, and languages. All of those things really began building on each other for the past 2,500 years. And here we are today. I mean, they weren't all taught in exactly the same way. Uh, most of our modern education is taught in a system that was designed in Prussia, which is um, a part of Germany back in the day. And it was really a, a system that was designed to build uh, or grow and educate workers and soldiers, you know, to for the good of the country or whatever. And so that model really somehow managed to spread across Europe and into the United States and all around the world as like this dominant model. The reason that I'm bringing this up is that nature education is actually only about 60 or 70 years old in a classical way um, with the birth of environmental education, uh, earth science, and, and really talking about the environment and talking about um, nature. Because really, a hundred years ago, we were all driving uh, horse and buggies and we were growing food. And I mean, we were still living a lot of our life very deeply connected to nature, you know, 100, 150 years ago. Whereas now the tables have really flipped and we've never really been more disconnected 
from the natural world than humanity is right now, ever in the history of our species. And so when you look at like a 70 year old topic that's popping up here and it says, Hey, we want to be part of your, of your party here, you know, your, your math, science and, uh, you know, history, social studies and, and languages. Um, they are just kind of laughing at us like they do for economics. And, you know, there are certain fields where um, they're not really taken as seriously in, you know, university settings and larger academic, um, you know, uh, organizations because they see these newcomers as, you know, the new kid on the block who hasn't paid their dues. You know, they haven't been around for 2000 years. So it's kind of like, uh, yeah. Well, give us a call in a thousand years. And if you're still around, you know, maybe we'll listen to you. But just understanding that barrier to me is really helpful because one of the things that I have found that makes it easier to put nature into a program is to merge language, history, art, science, with our nature programs, because once you merge it with one of those pillars, it's way easier to get them approved. It's way easier to get funding because people go, oh, you're doing something that's science related. Okay. Hey, well, we know that's good. Here, here's some money. Here, do it. If they say, hey, it's good for history. We're going to give you a living history experience. Boom. Okay. Well, boy, that makes my life easier. I can sit back. I can check off some boxes. You guys are going to do this awesome thing, which everybody's going to benefit. Even like Johnny Walker, who uh, is running this program using poetry and nature and and language to um, get programs approved for taking children out of London and into the New Forest in southern England. Really, really important work merging these things. So, hey, I'm not only sharing about the barriers, I'm also giving you a little secret to how to get around them in some cases. There's a forthcoming interview that I have with Sandy Reed, who is a science teacher, and she actually effectively merged uh, science and tracking in nature to be able to get things approved. So there's ways around this, but this is a situation that is 200, uh, you know, 2,500 years in the making. It's not going to change anytime soon. So it's just a mountain we have to deal with. Uh, another barrier is what I call the parent or teacher lack of experience and training. That to me is one of the things that we can change, but it is a problem in that it just makes it harder to get people on board or to get people doing what we are hoping that they will support because many, many teachers many parents right now, today, did not grow up with a close relationship to nature. They didn't grow up on a farm. Many of them have not had a garden. They have not gone hiking. They have not gone camping. In my experience as an educator, when I first started teaching and leading programs, almost all the Waldorf school teachers, Waldorf is a private school system in the US and all over the world, and one of the things they do a lot is take a, a class trip every year with their class and they go somewhere and sometimes they go to a farm, sometimes they go on a camping trip, they go rafting down a river, they do a lot of different types of things. And back in the day, the teacher would just get the kids in a van, 
get some camping gear and they would just go and have a great time. Well, over the years, I've had a lot of the teachers would then, you know, look at our website, see that I do programs. They would call up and go, hey, can you do a program for five days with my students? I don't really know how to camp. I not really, I'm not really comfortable. I don't really want to go out and try to do the food and get coolers and ice and, you know, manage the tents and everything. They just want someone else to handle that because they're just not familiar with doing that. And it's much, much more common, you know, to have teachers who are in that situation. And so then they pay us to come in and do the heavy lifting, if you will. And in Australia, I know they they did a study that I was looking up uh, last year, and it was a survey with teachers, and they said 71% of them claimed that one of the reasons they don't try to incorporate more nature is that they just don't feel comfortable, they don't feel like they have enough training to do it and to do it safely. And so they're taking an educational reputation risk by taking groups outside and doing things with them. And if something goes wrong, it could really impact them and their their families and so forth. So because they're not really sure how to deal with extreme heat or rain or sun or uh, mosquitoes or whatever the things are, insects and bird, you know, anything like that, when they are struggling with understanding that, they will usually just opt to not do it and then just dodge the risk. And many of them said they would like to do it, but they just need more training and they're not sure where to go and how to get it and what, what would be accepted and all of that. So there's a, a lot of work that could be done to really help expand the, the bottleneck of teacher trainings and giving them those experiences even later in life to start giving them those, um, those uh, times and training in the forest, giving them skills, giving them time on a farm, anything that they can do to start seeing for them to see the benefits and also to see the potential for all the benefits of their students. And I really believe that has to kind of happen at a university or college level because it's very difficult to just do a one-day in-service continuing ed program and and expect to have any significant change. I I don't think that is realistic. So it would be helpful that while they're in a four-year education program to actually build nature into that. I don't know how much work you know, would entail that. I don't know if people are actually act- actively trying to add that into, you know, getting an education degree. I don't know, but that would seem like a really important part of nature and forest educator overall field development. That would be a really important piece to focus on. And I'll also say that one area to help parents and also to help us if we're working with children who are older, you know, in, you know, elementary school, uh, middle school, and also high school and beyond. We have to start really making sure that parents have access to infant and toddler nature programs so that parents that don't have a lot of experience in nature can get that with their children and get comfortable, get to the beach, get to the park, go to a waterfall, go out and have really wonderful experiences. And we need to encourage that. We need we need a lot more trainers. We need a lot more publicity to help un- people understand that 
you can, if you're a parent and you yet you haven't really been connected to nature, you can have, there are people who can kind of hold your hand, help you out and get you to where you can be awesome. And if we do that, those children and those parents are going to be looking for your programs down the road. So we need to support those folks. We need to really encourage them. We need to tell them they're doing a good job. Like we need to do whatever we can to help them keep doing what they do. And that will help us, all of us. Uh, another aspect, and this is like two areas that I think are both combined. One of them is the access to natural areas problem. So we have a problem where people who are in urban or suburban areas where they just are not finding places where they can really explore, have a little bit of privacy, and just have an, a space to build like an intimate relationship to nature. I mean, yeah, it's all good to go to Central Park or go to the go to the pier and, you know, be out there and see the ocean and all that. But it is hard to have a, a real unique experience if there's like 600 people walking around, roller skating around next to you and doing whatever. It's, you know, if a seagull is grabbing your sandwich out of your hand or something, it can just be like, all right, hey, I'm having a natural experience. But it's different than being in a place where you can really hear the birds and have it be quiet and all that. This is a barrier because people, there are millions of people living in really big urban areas. And, you know, and when you do go to a park, there are a lot of restrictions. Like you're not allowed to just pick up and take sticks because if everybody did, there'd be no sticks, right? All of those things can get in the way. And the Children in Nature Network is also working at a macro level to try to influence policymakers and city planners and urban development to include nature protected spaces for people to enjoy and connect to it as part of the planning of cities and towns and schools and everything like to really green that environment because it's just really important for everyone. I mean, cities that have, you know, trees along the freeway going around the beltway of a, of a city has less anxiety and less, uh, you know, there's, there's a tremendous actual measurable effect of better health as a result of having green spaces just in your environment. So this is really key. And I think that this isn't something that I think the average forest school educator or summer camp counselor is going to then go, Hey, I think I'll go to the, you know, Atlanta city council meeting and, you know, start working at this level. Like it, it takes a lot of training and effort and expertise to go in and actually advocate. So we're not, ex I'm not expecting any of you to <laughs> drop what you're doing and get your briefcase and put your best clothes on and make an impact that way. Although go for it if you're into it. But this, this is a really important piece because we need to make sure that we can, you know, have access to nature anywhere we can, even if it's just getting a vacant lot and putting a community garden in there or, you know, getting trees planted along your streets or whatever we can do to encourage that um, is super important. And, and the, the flip side to this is that one of the big barriers to nature education also comes uh, from the economic factor and time factor, you know, they're kind of combined where very, you know, a lot of people, a, probably a majority of people 
do not have the extra cash and time to be able to say, have a second home somewhere in the country to be able to drive and leave and go out every weekend and pay for the gas money to drive out and like go camping or stay at a place. You know, they, they don't have the means to get away all the time to go skiing on the weekends in the winter or just get away to a vacation. Like a lot of people don't even have time to get to a vacation. So when you don't have the money for that, because you're working two jobs or three jobs just to put food on the table and keep this thing moving called your family, your nature is going to be way down on the list, right? You know, it's going to be like rent, power, pay your loans or whatever, pay for food, you know, get your ramen noodles or whatever. And then like, okay, way down at the bottom is going to be, uh, yeah, taking a trip to a national park or renting a car so you can drive somewhere because very, not everybody has cars. And, and so in those cases, it can be really tricky too, because then if you're, if you don't have a natural experience and you want your child to do it, then you can say, Hey, maybe I can send them to camp, but then the summer camp costs money. All of those things typically cost some money that comes out of pocket. So this is a huge barrier. One of the ways that we change that is by getting these forest schools and these nature programs into our schools or recognized and or eligible for federal and state funding so that they can be offered to everyone and not just to the people that can afford it. And that is something that I know people are working on trying to address and, you know, that kind of like social justice element to it. And it's really important to just understand that that is a very real barrier and it's a source of, uh, of struggle uh, because, you know, parents that are working three jobs still can feel that their child really could benefit from these things. And they're just like, oh my gosh, I just don't know what to do. And, and I know for myself, for all the years I spent working in a, in a camp setting as a director, um, you know, I, when people did come to me and say, hey, I don't have any money, can I come? You know, that part of me will say, hey, you know what, let's, let me just figure it out. Hey, you know what, we're running this camp already, come on out. I would do everything I could to try to support those students and the, and the family um, because I just knew how important it is for them to have those experiences and what a gift it is for them. And they, I would say 99% of the time, they all really, really appreciated and understood what we were trying to do. And I had people that did help to donate at times to build a scholarship fund, but it is a lot of work to do that. So if you were doing that work to help address some of these things, I do know that the long-term solution is to make it equitable for everyone by putting it in the public domain and getting these things so that they're available and accessible to everyone. That should ultimately be our long-term goal. And again, if you're running a private program, you run a school, you run a camp, yeah, I'm not expecting you to turn around and go, okay, I'm now gonna lobby my state government. I understand that you're not gonna do that. I'm just saying, ultimately, we wanna support that effort and see if there's a way, because that's, that's ultimately what will solve a lot of issues for us um, and, and add to better stability for our communities, for ourselves as educators, all of that. All of that can happen. And it's going to take time because this has been a generational problem that's been building for hundreds of years. It's not going to get resolved anytime soon. Uh, but 
we got to start somewhere and we got to at least just support those things and and try to keep that one eye that can see the bird's eye view and kind of see the meta overall situation and then go, all right, yeah, we do need to do that. And, and that's good. So, all right. So the, the other element that I want to bring up is called the power of the gatekeeper or the problem of the gatekeeper sometimes, because many times there are people in a school or in an organization or something where there's just someone who doesn't like what you're doing, or they don't like taking a risk, or they just would rather see the money go to art or science or, or, you know, band or music or whatever it might be. Maybe it's more like they want their pet project to be done or, or, and, and they don't really want to do what you're wanting to do. And that can be really frustrating. And so these, these gatekeepers, they exist in every single business organization school like there are people and they're not necessarily always in a position of of power or authority over everyone um but they can just you know like if you're in a school and there's a bunch of teachers and the principal's like yay we're gonna do this thing and if like half of the teachers are like yeah we don't want to do that and they're dragging their feet it can slowly kill your program because they're just gonna suck the oxygen out of it and they're gonna emphasize every negative possible thing and they're going to be like, well, all the children got sunburned yesterday when you took them outside. Like, like it can just be this, a real dragarino, if you know what I mean. Like, you're just going like, oh, please. You know what? I'm not bugging you guys when you guys are in there making, you know, whatever you're doing in your classroom. Come on, you know, get on board, please, or whatever. And that, you know, there are ways around the gatekeepers and we as educators need to understand that sometimes those people just don't get how this program can benefit them, how being part of this can add to their resume. Sometimes they don't understand. Maybe they just don't want to look bad in front of other people. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. It's complicated. It's complicated, just like families are complicated. Our relationships are complicated. Our businesses, I mean, everything in our world is complicated. But it does present a problem that people have gotten used to being able to figure out how to go around, how to, how to make it work anyway. And we need the hero stories of people who have found a way, you know, to identify, Hey, this is one of the things I saw. This is where a gatekeeper was here. This is where somebody else was, you know, undermining my thing, you know, either consciously or unconsciously. And here's what I did about it, you know, in a, in a dispassionate way, in a way where we can learn from and grow from and maybe start to find inroads into making a change so that we can still manage to get what we need to do and also help support that person because many times they're just under a tremendous amount of stress. Teachers are just, there's so much riding on their work and their expectations and their requirements and all that. And I have a lot of compassion for them, even the ones that are struggling or get in our way or whatever, because they're just trying to make the best of a, of a dysfunctional system. And it's, it's inevitable that these things are not necessarily going to just work by clockwork. Uh, and I'll be honest, like we can, we need to present the facts and the research and the articles and the 
anecdotal stuff. We need to celebrate the successes of all these other programs and present that to our communities and our, our educational organizations. But just remember that just putting that out there alone won't sway hearts and minds. People who are resistant or fearful or struggling are very difficult to change. Like it, it's not easy. So keep that in mind as you go forward and know that it's really important to reach out to other educators. And if you see somebody doing something and you, you go, wow, they got that program to launch at whatever school. It's, it's totally fine to message them on social media, message them, you know, by email, get on their website, look them up, find those people, and then just ask them, Hey, I'm working in this situation. Can you tell me how you got that program off here? I'd love to hear your story. Hey, send them to me. I'll try to interview them because to me, that is a story that we need to hear. We need to hear what are some of the best practices to getting around and getting everybody on board and helping to manage and facilitate change. And I know that one of my guests back in the maybe episode seven or something, seven or eight, uh, Aurelia, she is uh, an amazing person that goes into schools and helps them build a nature program in urban schools and get everybody on board. So she's literally a change manager, a change consultant. And I would urge you to look up what she's doing, make a connection with her, follow her on LinkedIn, follow her on Facebook, whatever you can find her and just make a connection because we need people with those skills. I, I know that it, a lot of people think like, oh, if I just learned a new way of tracking or if I could just make fire with a, with a bow drill or a flint and steel fire making, or if I just knew how to make a, a really cool bow and arrow, like we oftentimes think of what is the barriers to the children and, the, you know, like, oh, if we could just get one more piece of curriculum, then it would be so cool. Everybody will get on board. I would just say <laughs> we have plenty of stuff for the kids. Like, honestly, we have way, we have way too much stuff in some ways. What we really need are these other skills. These are the skills that we need. Um, man, I would love to assemble a team of people and say, Hey, let's do a course where we just teach people these skills, because that would be fantastic in, in how to address some of these, some of these barriers and move forward. So that's kind of what I'm excited about doing this podcast. The last barrier that I want to mention is called what I call the cultural barriers. And there are some people who have lived in communities where, you know, living close to the land is associated with being poor. And you see this in like Appalachia, where there are, you know, people that are like, hey, I'm getting a roadkill animal and I'm going to eat that and I'm going to make, grow my garden. And, and, and so, you know, if you're like an early generation, uh, you know, inhabitant of, of America, sometimes you'll come and go, yeah, going and doing all that, all that nature stuff is really reminding me of the past that we are trying to get away from. And we want to, we'd rather you guys go into sports as kids or go into things that are going to help you get into college and help us, help us to kind of like rise above our, our means. And 
that can be a barrier for a lot of people, a lot of young people, because um, they can sort of sense that, that their family's not really behind it. And sometimes that trickles into the organ at the organizational level or whatever. So there are ways around that as well. I'm not an expert at that, but I will say that that is something that is another barrier. And it's something that I think, uh, you know, groups like Latino Outdoors is dealing with that, um, possibly too, to some degree, Outdoor Afro and, you know, Akima Price and Rumap and all those amazing leaders, Jose Gonzalez. All those folks are doing really amazing work because they're, they're working with uh, communities of people that are, you know, starting to really go, we can do this. We're going to, we're going to fully engage in the outdoors and, and I'm, I'm there for it. I'm loving it. I think that we need that a hundred percent. So I hope this is helpful. I'm really just trying to, you know, lay out a little bit of the landscape and, you know, begin a discussion. So this is really a, a beginning, a preliminary discussion around, you know, devising some different solutions. I've kind of thrown out some different things. Please, if there is a barrier that I'm not aware of or that I didn't list here, please send me a note. You know, I'm on a lot of different, you can send it to me any way you find it, find me and just get in there and send me something and say, Hey, Ricardo, here's a barrier you didn't really consider that I'm dealing with all the time. Or if you have a solution to one of these that I didn't mention, please let me know. And I'm going to just end by saying that it sometimes is helpful to look at how has cultural change happened in our communities, in our cultures, where I look at sometimes, I don't like to necessarily just look at nature, but I really look at trends. And I remember a few years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, thinking, you know, how can I get a naturalist in every school? Like, what, could, what would it take to get that? And, ha- and have that be just like, oh, of course. And I started to think about yoga because I have friends who've done, you know, yoga for years and, and have been into it. And I remember like just looking at the history of yoga in the United States and like thinking back to, you know, those first early practitioners coming out, you know, from the East, coming here and then getting a chance to practice and teach people and give people the experiences that lead to the benefits, the many benefits of doing yoga on our bodies and our minds and, and our everything. And, and I think it's been like a hundred years, like it's been, they've been plugging away for a hundred years and for some reason, and I, and, and this, we need more study on this, but all of a sudden, you know, like 20 years ago or so yoga suddenly kind of cracked the code. And now if you go to almost any city, there is yoga in pretty much every every community, there is a yoga instructor or two or three or four. There's different schools of yoga. And there literally is like a yoga teacher in every corner. And the the challenge, of course, is can you have a high paid, you know, a, a person who can make a living wage teaching yoga? That's their challenge. And I know that they work really hard to try to, to develop that and grow with that. And I want, I really believe that Nature education, forest education is is about to have a moment where we could really merge into this econ- uh, educational model and system and really bring everything that we have to benefit our communities and our children 
but we have to make sure that we are doing this very consciously and that we're not just sort of letting it evolve and and not evolve in a way that's good for people in a, in a sustainable way. So what I mean by that is we need people that really get what we're advocating for and to make sure that if we're going to put a naturalist in every school, that naturalist has to be really well-trained. They need to be able to minimize risk that is excessive risk. Not, I'm not talking about playing and being out in tree, you know, climbing on logs, but I'm talking about, you know, people that maybe can be a little bit wild cardish. But we also need those people to be paid like a teacher. So they need to have an economic um, livelihood so that they could do this for 10, 15 years and really transform our communities and our schools. And if, if that's going to happen, we need to make sure that whoever is out there advocating for us really gets that and, and can really, you know, bring about effective change. I mean, let's be real. Teachers all need to get paid more. I think that they should get paid more. And at the same time, I'm also saying like most nature educators that I know, if they got access to the teacher benefits of healthcare and a pension and there's and a salary that was guaranteed, that would be for most of them, that would be a significant step up from what they're making now. So please, uh, if any of you are out there advocating, just make sure you are putting down the right number of zeros behind whatever your proposals are so that these people can really be taken seriously. Because if, if schools aren't going to fund it, you know, if the Department of Education isn't really going to do it, then they're not really serious about solving these problems. And if they're not serious about it, then, then I don't see why we should then get married to their system and have to jump through all the hoops that they require in order to get, you know, like the pay that an environmental educator gets, you know, somebody who can go through four years of college, jump into environmental education, and then basically get a moldy yurt and, uh, you know, minimum wage. That is just not a model where you just want to, you know, recycle through these people, use them up, and then they all leave within three or four years to go get a job at a real, in a real situation that they can feed their families and they kind of have to let go of their dream of being an educator. And I think we can change that, but I think we have to really hold, you know, know what we're trying to build and then do that. So yeah, this is what we're doing. And I, I really appreciate everybody for listening and I appreciate your comments. I appreciate your work that you're doing at whatever level. Please don't think that I'm telling you if you're a camp counselor that you need to start advocating. Like, just, just know that it's not easy to be a forest educator and there's a lot of reasons for this and they're way bigger than just you or me. They're, they are, they are, you know, species generational, like they are just massive. It's been millennia of situational uh, change and we're, we're due for a really good thing because we have something that works, but it's going to take a little bit and we really need to work together. So thanks for everything you're doing. See you in the next episode and have a great day and get outside. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes 
my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.